Just from the, um, thanks, honey. Oh, nope, somebody else. Honey, anybody? My wife, Colin Newby. You're awesome, thank you. We'll leave this right here, and I'm going to need a Bible. All right. Okay. All right, let's, let's pray for a moment. We'll just pause here and ask for the Lord's help. Thank you, God. Lord, thank you that you are with us right now. We love you. And we need you. We're hungry for you. We need, uh, we need your voice today. Thank you, God. Thank you, Lord. Yeah, and so I, I rest and we rest. Jesus, and what you've done for us. That we can now, with confidence, approach God's throne to receive from him and to learn from him. That we can sit at the feet of Jesus and receive. Thank you, God. In your name, amen. All right. Am I good? Bring it up a little bit. I ask you a question this morning to start. You can talk with somebody about the answer to this. That way you can verify if you've gotten the correct answer. Feel good about yourself. There's no prizes today for this. Sorry. But. And this is based on a survey that I conducted um, with myself this morning. <laughs> Very scientific approach. But in my life, I've been on a dozen, if not two dozen, mission trips all through high school and then kind of college and adult life. Probably not two dozen, but at least a dozen. And uh, in that time, there's one rule that is consistently spoken about, whether it's leading up to the trip or on the trip. So my question to you is, what, what is that rule that often is, is given as a, as, a, as, a, as a rule that, hey, almost every trip has this, this same rule before you leave? So talk about that for one minute, and then I'll, I'll tell you at least what my answer is that I've found consistently. Okay, ready, go. All right. Any guesses? Don't drink the water. Okay. <laughs> I didn't think of that one, but that's good. Okay. That's not it. Sorry. No, that's not it because I've been on lots of mission trips in the United States, and usually you can drink the water in the U.S. Stay with the group. Okay, that's right. Stay together, pray together. That's a good rule, but that's not it either. Wow, I'm so surprised. No whining. Yes. Over and over again, when I've been on a trip, that has been a, a, a common theme that I have seen, like no complaining or no whining. All right. Japanese scientist Masaru Emoto performed some of the most fascinating experiments on the effect that words have on energy in the 1990s. Okay? 
When frozen, water that's free from all impurities will form beautiful ice crystals that look exactly like snowflakes under a microscope. Water that's polluted or has additives like fluoride will freeze without forming crystals. In his experiments, Emoto poured pure water into vials labeled with negative phrases like, I hate you or fear. After 24 hours, the water was frozen and no longer crystallized under the microscope. It yielded gray, misshapen clumps instead of beautiful, lace-like crystals. In contrast, Emoto placed labels that said things like, I love you or peace on vials of polluted water, and after 24 hours, they produced gleaming, perfectly hexagonal crystals. Emoto's experiments proved that energy generated by positive or negative words can actually change the physical structure of an object. The results of his experiments were detailed in a series of books beginning with the hidden messages in water, where you can see the astounding before and after photos of these incredible water crystals. Now, just as a disclaimer, I'm not promoting, you know, what was Oprah's book a while ago? The Secret, or something like that? Yeah, okay, not just disclaimer, I'm not saying that. But what I want to talk about today is the power of our words. We're starting a series uh, today called Why Complaining is the Devil. Now, complaining is, is, in our culture, has become normal, if not just totally everywhere. From Facebook to your workplace around the lunchroom, people complain about everything. And what I want to argue today, and in this whole series over the next five weeks, is that complaining is not some insignificant little thing that I just do to kind of get something off of my chest. It, in fact, is from the devil. It is demonic in its very core. And it is like a pollutant that spoils everything around it. Now, this year, hopefully as you remember, as, and as Sean just reminded us, the word of the Lord for us this year, the thing that we're working on all year is to rejoice in the Lord. To find that place where regardless of my circumstances, right, I can be content in all circumstances through Christ who strengthens me. As we went through the book of Philippians. And again, just to give you the vision piece, right, my sense was from the Lord that, hey, if we can nail this down as a people, the first promise is that we will shine like stars, right, in a crooked and perverse generation as Paul says it in Philippians. But secondly, that in 2020, the word of the Lord for us is going to be vision, God's going to give us clarity in moving forward as a people and seeing more and more people come to know Jesus and more and more freedom in our midst. So again, the question I want to ask is, hey, do our words really have that much power and is complaining really that big a deal, Brian? I mean, come on. Okay. Does anyone want to hear the answer to that? No? Okay. So to do this, we're going to look at the book of Exodus. All right, we're going to be jumping around today because it's a very long book, and to cover the whole thing in five weeks, we can't just stand up here and read it. So I'm going to be trying to give you, fill in, you, fill in for you some of the pieces of the narrative and help you kind of understand the story that's going on here and look at some key passages along the way that, are, uh, that Moses is, is making some really significant points. So here's how the book starts, okay? You've got, you've got this guy Joseph. He's got 11 brothers. He's living in this land of Canaan. His brothers uh, don't like him because he's kind of the favorite child. Long story short, he ends up in Egypt because they sell him into slavery. And then God saves the whole kind of civilized world in that area because he gives Joseph an interpretation of a dream that Pharaoh had. And he 
store, he gets put in charge of all Pharaoh's kingdom. They store up all this food. And so after seven years of plenty, there's seven years of famine. And all these surrounding places that would have been devastated by the famine, they're safe. Okay? Maybe many of you know that story. There was a terrible summary. Okay? All right. So Joseph's whole family comes down. There's a, there's a dramatic story around that. You can read in the end of Genesis. But basically, they, they end up settling in Egypt for like hundreds of years. And they multiply rapidly. It talks about how, how rapidly they multiply just in the beginning of Exodus. And so you're talking about over 400 years. They start with 12 guys and their kids and, and wives. And they, they just become this massive group of people. And so what happens is uh, a pharaoh rises to power. And it says in Exodus 1 that he, he did not know about Joseph. or he, he, just, he had no knowledge of this relationship between this Hebrew people and the Egyptians. And this fear, this spirit of fear began to rise up in Pharaoh and in the Egyptians because this group of people were multiplying so greatly. And, and it says that they, they were afraid that if war broke, broke out, that the Hebrews would rise up and join the enemy and overthrow their kingdom. So there's this fear. So what do they do? Well, they enslave all of the Hebrews. They have enough power over this, what is still a minority, that they enslave them. And so they force them to hard labor building these different, they put them in kind of these different sites that it talks about in Exodus 1, and they're, they're required to make bricks and then build these buildings for Pharaoh and his, and his kingdom. And it actually doesn't stop there because the Hebrews continue to multiply. And so Pharaoh moves from just a place of enslaving people to also now genocide. And if you know the story of kind of, you know, baby Moses, Pharaoh issues this decree and says any, any male child uh, that's born you're commanded to throw him into the Nile. And so if that continues indefinitely, like, that's a whole people group that eventually would be assimilated and wiped out. They would not be no longer a separate people. And so that's where we're picking up the story. And so with, within that story comes this one specific story about one little boy, one little baby. His mother has this, this baby Moses, and she hides him for three months, but after a while she just realizes this is not going to work. I don't want him to die. So she just builds this basket of reeds and, and coats it with tar and puts them along the Nile, just kind of praying to God that somehow he will be rescued and, and not be found out and killed. Moses floats along the Nile, and lo and behold, Pharaoh's daughter is out there bathing with her attendants, and she sees a basket. They go get it, bring the baby over, and she ends up adopting him into her family. And so Moses grows up as a Hebrew, but in Pharaoh's household. Uh, when Moses is 40 years old, he goes walking to kind of see what's going on with his people. So somehow he, he, he was raised in Pharaoh's household, but he, he knows that he was a Hebrew. And he sees an Egyptian beating one of the Hebrew slaves, and he ends up killing the Egyptian. Pharaoh finds out, wants to put Moses to death, and Moses flees to the land of Midian. Okay? And then we're fast-forwarding another 40 years. So, so I want you to just realize the timeline here that we're talking about. This started before Moses was born, so we don't know how long a period of time it was that the people were enslaved and that babies under two years old were being killed. Moses lives 40 years, and then another 40 years, he's 80 years old, okay, at this point. The people have been enslaved. This is multiple generations that are growing up in slavery and in, underneath this, this really hard hand of Pharaoh. I want to start, if you have a Bible, in reading Exodus, a portion of Exodus chapter 2. We're going to start in verse uh, 23. This is just kind of a summary here of what's happening. So 
I've just summarized all of chapters 1 and 2 for you, and you can go back and read that later. It says, during that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help, because of their slavery, it went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Now, Israel groaned. I want you to understand here that I, I, I think, my impression here is that this is not, God is not receiving this in the same way as a complaint. All through the book of Exodus and then later on in Numbers, you'll see that Israel, it uses this word, they're complaining and grumbling over and over again, but it starts out in a different light. They're bringing this difficulty and hardship to God. It's, it's, it's in, the, in the sense of, uh, of like a lament. Okay, and it's an expression in some ways of faith. They're, they're, they're praying to God. They're raising up this pain and turmoil, this affliction that they're in. And it's not a victim mentality. Although they've been enslaved, although they are victims, this is a step towards something. Even if it's all that they can do is pray, they're doing something and they're bringing these things before God. It's not a jab at God. As I've said before, complaining is a challenge to the character of God. It's an assault on his character. It's saying, God, you are not good. You have not been good to me. You have wronged me. Even if that's subconscious, that is the spirit of complaining. But we see in the beginning of this, that's not what this is. It's an expression of difficulty. It's similar to the Psalms. As, as uh, Kurt Mailer put it last week, right? It's, it's not a pout, it's a pouring it out to God. We have to understand that right before we get into this series of complaining, because we have to understand what complaining is, right? It is not saying, bottle everything up and inside and be a stoic New Englander. That is not healthy. But it is also not saying, you're allowed to stay in a place of being a victim, you're allowed to just emote all of this negative thing all the time without moving forward in any way. Okay? There's a very clear difference here. Complaining is something that is taking a jab at God's character. It's, you're trying to needle God a little bit and say, you haven't been good to me. Right? You're just throwing it up there. It's, it's not a humble expression of, hey, this is really difficult, and God, I'm bringing it to you. Oftentimes with even deep emotion and pain. There's a, there's a stark contrast between that and what complaining is. My wife and I recently got our first family pet. And uh, it's a wonderful pet. It's, it's pretty easy to take care of. It needs, it needs a little bit of attention every day. And um, it, actually is, it actually is helping our family in some different ways based on, you know, what this pet is able to do. This pet's a SCOBY, which is a symbiotic culture of bacteria and yeast, okay? So we've been, my wife, like a month or two ago, uh, bought me some uh, water kefir. If you've never heard of water kefir, it's kind of like... Um, it's kind of like kombucha, if you've heard of kombucha, okay? Except it tastes really good, okay? So there's a process to brew this. What you do is you put it in a large, one of those largest mason jars, of these little kefir grains, and um, you put some sugar in there and then some kind of minerals. I put like some molasses in or some raisins, and you let it sit there for a couple days with kind of a cloth top, and it gives it air and lets it breathe, and it, it produces this, this probiotic liquid. 
And then after two days, you take it out and you pour it into bottles and you strain out all the kefir grains so you can just reuse them. And so this is just kind of a liquid and it's been bottled for a couple days. And what this does in this process is then it gives it fizz. So it really tastes, it tastes a lot like a soda because it's fizzy and, um, and you drink it like soda. I don't know what the second point was there, okay? Now, what I want to say is, 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 maybe this is a stretch, but stay with me, okay? Uh, processing water kefir is like this contrast between complaining and being a stoic New Englander. If I don't process the kefir and I just let it sit in that jar, it will die. It will smell bad, it will not get anything to eat. And it will just sit in this. That is the difference between complaining and moving forward. You just sit in the negativity. There's no forward movement. There's no processing of anything. It's just, I'm just, I'm just venting. I'm just getting this out. I'm just posting this on Facebook. I'm just, here's some negative stuff. That's kind of like what would happen if I just let that sit on my counter and never process it after a couple of days. Eventually it would lead to death. And that is what complaining does. It's a challenge against the character of God. It's a jab at him. It's saying, I'm a victim. There's, a, there's an element of pride in there. This is, I deserve better than this. Now, the opposite spectrum that's also unhealthy is if I put this on my shelf for a week, this thing would explode. And that's what happens if we don't process our emotions. You bottle it up, you put it on the shelf, and you say, well, I dealt with that, it's fine. I'm, I'm, I'm good, I'm a strong person. I don't need to deal with emotions, especially men, right? That leads to anger, right? That leads to an explosion of what the stuff that's in you that needs to come out. The healthy thing is to continue the process over and over again, right? We keep feeding these kefir grains, we put them in bottles, and then after a couple days, you open it up. And it should do this. Ah, I did pretty good. Okay, a little spill. There we go. Mm. That's peach. It's really good. It tastes just like soda. You want a sip? Okay. Guys, when we process things, when instead of pouting, we pour things out to God from a place of humility, from a place of releasing them, as we said last time, stop, drop, and extol, right? It leads to an encounter with God. What does it say? God heard them and responded, right? He came to their rescue. He, God went and moved on their behalf. So that is the difference, right? We're not bottling things up. We're not just complaining and sitting that negativity. We're bringing them to God. We're stopping the complaining. We're dropping them at the feet of Jesus. We're processing all that negative things with God, right? And doing that, you know you're not complaining when you can still say, God, I praise you. You're good, right? Even if it's really hard and even if you're really mad at God, you still can be in a place of worship, Okay? That's how you know the difference of complaining. One more picture just to share. You know, complaining is kind of like you sit God down and put a muzzle on his mouth and just start talking at him about all the negative things. Processing it in a healthy way is where you're talking with God and he is not muzzled. You're bringing the things before him loosely. You're saying, this is, this is really hard. I'm bringing it to you. All right, maybe I'm belaboring the point. But all of that to say, and this is the point that Kurt made last week from Psalm 42, 
when we do that, it leads to a place of meeting God, of God encountering us and bringing us forward. It may not fix our circumstances. Obviously, in this case, it was, but we'll see it didn't fix what was going on inside of them. Let's jump forward in the narrative. Uh, Exodus 3, 7 through 15. Okay, if you want to flip to the next page. So now here's Moses and the Lord talking. This is the burning bush scene. I can't read you all of it, but we're going to jump into this, right in the middle of it. The Lord appears in a burning bush to Moses while he's out tending his sheep. He's now 80 years old. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, blah, blah, blah. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. Now, first of all, on the surface, we see God is bringing them to something good. He has a good plan for them. He wants to bring them into this land. And actually, at the end of that chapter, it says, I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed towards this people so that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor and any woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, which you will put on your sons and daughters, and so you will plunder the Egyptians. He wants to send them out wealthy and bring them into a land that they haven't even cultivated. It's going to be flowing with milk and honey, meaning it's a rich land, not just that there's lots of cows and bees, okay? So all that to say, we see God's intention for them is good. But even more importantly, we see God revealing to Moses who he is. He reveals his name, and embedded in that name, the sense of I am, is tied into this narrative is that I am with you. Over and over again, we see that repeated in the scripture, that part of God, of who his name is, of who he reveals himself to be, is a God that is with us. Not one that is abstractly out there, Wondering if we're going to screw things up anymore or just, you know, sending lightning bolts when we do. God is revealing himself as a, as a God who has good intentions for his people and wants to be with them. And that is what you see unfolded in the rest of the book as God wants to dwell with his people and they pull away and then he's got to build a tabernacle and then he's in them and then, you know, all these crazy things are happening. But God's heart is to be with. It's part of that name I am. I am with you. Oftentimes, when we're processing, when we're actually processing the things of life, we will not get an answer from God as to why something bad happened. And that's oftentimes what we think we need. But what we really need is a revelation that God was with us in that hard time. 
That makes all the difference. Just sharing personally, this is what I asked for prayer for actually this morning. I don't know why, but the last few days, I've just felt kind of distance between me and God. And um, life is just not as sweet when I'm not sensing that God is with me. And so we're always fighting a battle to get to that place where we believe that God is with us and more and more we're able to sense his presence. That's what processing things is all about, is just knowing that God was with me. And oftentimes we've got to do some forgiveness work, we've got to get some lies out. That's part of the process of things that hold us back. The freedom that we sang about today, oftentimes that's a lot of the case of why we're not free, because we're holding on to something. And guys, that's what this process is about. We're stopping complaining. We're dropping these things at the feet of Jesus. We're processing them. We're pouring out the negative things, but we're landing at a place of worship. That's God's intention for his people. This will be a sign to you. On this mountain, you will worship me. I would have thought he would have said, you will see the Red Sea parted, or you'll see 10 crazy plagues, right? He said, no, the sign is going to be that you're worshiping me. This is where we were going. This is where my presence is bringing you to a place of freedom where you're able to worship me, encounter me, know me. Experience my joy. So we read on. Chapter 4. Verse 29. So Moses goes back to Egypt. And um, it says, Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites. And Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people which were throw your staff down, it'll turn to a snake, then pick it back up, it'll become a staff. Put your hand in your robe, break it out, it'll be leprous, and then put it back in and I'll heal it. And then the third sign was take some water from the Nile, pour it out, and it'll turn to blood. So Moses does all these things before the people, and it says, and they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshiped. So we see things start out well for Israel. Okay, Moses has come, Wow, there's these crazy signs he's performing. God's heard our prayers. He's going to rescue us. They believe, okay? That's pretty much the last place it's good for the rest of this book and the next three that follow. Because really quickly, the narrative turns, okay? So Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh in chapter 5. They say, hey, God tells you, let my people go, right? Charlton Heston, okay? And so we pick up in verse 20. What happens is uh, Pharaoh says, okay, I'm not letting them go, and you guys are just lazy, so I'm taking away the straw. We're not going to provide you with any more straw. You've got to make the same amount of bricks, and now you have to also do more work and go get straw to make the bricks. So now he's really putting the screws to the Israelites. And so in verse 20, we hear this. Uh, maybe verse 19. The Israelites' overseers realized they were in trouble when they were told, you are not to reduce the number of bricks required for you each day. When they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them, and they said, May the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. They're, they're playing the blame game. The grumbling and complaining has just started. Now, they just saw miracles, right? Snake, staff, back to, sorry, staff, snake, back to staff, right? Water turned to blood. Leprous hand, not leprous anymore. And they believed and they worshiped. And now so quickly, it's shifted when they encounter something difficult. 
Now, before we start pointing the finger at them and saying how silly, how often is it the same for us? How often does our heart shift when we encounter difficult times from, God, you're awesome, to, what in the world, God? Ah, you're awful, right? I deserve better than this. We start blaming, or we blame other people in the middle of that. And interesting that it says, it, it, it lacks to say they cried out to God. They didn't. Or at least it doesn't say that they did like they did before. They've now all of a sudden, Moses, you're to blame. We're mad at you. Guys, complaining reveals a proud, idolatrous heart. When we complain, it says, I deserve better. It says, God, you've mistreated me. You've done me wrong. It says, I'm not getting what I really deserve or need. And and maybe it points a blame a finger at God or someone else. And there's nothing the devil loves more than to see people malign God's character. Because that's what he's all about. Right from the beginning. Did God really say? God's God's a liar. He's lying to you. That is the devil's mission, right? It's to feed us lies and get us to hate God. There's nothing he wants more than that. And complaining is this so deceptive, demonic strategy to malign God's character in this this kind of backdoor way that we think this is just a normal cultural way to express what we're feeling. It is not. It is an attack on God. And it, it hamstrings the people of God for the purposes of God. We have to get to a new level that when we encounter a little bit of difficulty, our praise rises all the more because we've found a secret place with God where we can bring everything that hurts. And in that secret place, we have discovered God is always with me. He will never leave me or forsake me. I can pour this out to him. My circumstances might not change, but I will find God to be good to me. That is stopping, dropping, and extolling. And that is the call of the people of God higher than anything else. The call of Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus. We are called to worship God. To declare His goodness. God gets the most glory when we worship Him in the midst of suffering. It's spitting in the devil's face if we're allowed to do that. Right? I don't know if we are. What did Michael Michael Leonard say? The Lord rebuke you, right? Okay, so don't take that too far. So we've had this conference that we had last weekend. We used to call it World Mandate. This year it was Antioch New England Conference. It wasn't really a conference. It was a family gathering, wasn't it? And the last three years, I I left kind of disappointed. I just was hoping for God to do more than he did, just hoping for just to see people encounter him or just confession of sin or miracles, whatever, you name it. And um, I'm not trying to pat myself on the back here, so please don't receive it this way, but I just, I left this year not disappointed because God is just pushing me in this word of the Lord for this year of rejoicing in the Lord into a new place of saying, God, I am not disappointed in you because I know, I just know in a new place that God is always working for my good. He's never holding out on me. He's never holding back, just wondering if we can push the right couple levers and then, you know, all sorts of good things will happen. That's not what he's like. And I just know that that's not what he's like. So am I hungry for more? Had I hoped maybe for more? Yes, but I'm not disappointed. I'm just not. How can I be disappointed? 
God is good. He's good to us. He's working for our benefit. He's always doing that. Oh, Lord, would you increase my own revelation of that? So the end of chapter 5, it says this in verse 22. Moses returned to the Lord and said, Why, Lord, have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. They're living in a place of tension where God has spoken something, and they have not yet seen it. Oh, isn't that the work of the Holy Spirit is in that tension right there to make you holy, to make you like Jesus. It's in that dynamic. So God again reminds Moses, these are the things I'm going to do. I've already said it, but I'm going to tell you again. And Moses goes and reminds the people of all the good things that God has in store for them, plundering the Egyptians, leading them to a land. They're not going to have to lift a finger to fight. But it says this. Moses reported this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and hard labor. We have to get to a place where the discouragement and the hard labor of our lives, we can move towards God so that that does not hinder us from listening to what he is saying and blocking us from believing what he's told us. It's a simple process. We just stop, we drop, we pour it out to God, we process what's in our hearts that's hard, and we lift our eyes to praise him. As Sean repeated the words today, we, we focus our minds on what is good and true and lovely and admirable. That's the place where we can move out of a place of discouragement. I'll just summarize these next two passages just for the sake of time. But obviously God sends the ten plagues, okay, Pharaoh's reluctant to let the people go. Eventually, he says, fine, you know, get out of here, you know, uh, and they leave. And they're at the, they're at the Red Sea, and, they, and they, they're about to, you know, figure out what to do next. And they start to see Pharaoh's army coming out to just slaughter them or to bring them back or whatever his plan was. And then what do they do? What is their reaction? They, they grumble against Moses and say, why did you bring us out here to die? And they're not living in a place of faith. They're only seeing with their physical eyes. And then Moses brings it to God. And God says, why are you bringing this to me? It's like the craziest thing in the world God could say to Moses as this army is approaching him. Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. It's like God expects Moses to say, strike that water and separate it, right? God... God is asking us to see with spiritual eyes, to, to look on what is unseen, to not just see our circumstances that are difficult, but to believe God at a, at a deeper place of, you know what, well, God said this, I believe it, and that settles it. That is the call of God. And it just doesn't end. The people cross the Red Sea, they get to a new place where they're looking for water, and they find the water to be bitter. And really, I think it's a, a parable to say it's the people of God who are bitter. 
When we don't deal with a complaining spirit, guess where it leads? It leads to bitter water, a bitter heart. We have to process these things, guys, with God. We cannot sit in a place of only looking at our circumstances. We've got to stop, drop, and lift our eyes and extol. Now, there's one more passage, and I want to end with this, in the book of Exodus that I think is central. The first is what I read about God revealing his name, that he is the I am, the God who is with us. But the second is this. When Moses goes up on the mountain and he's receiving the, the, the Ten Commandments and writing them down, God appears by him and says this, the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. That is what God is like. The devil wants to do everything he can to convince you that that is not true, because he knows that having that understanding in your heart is going to lead to everything else that God wants to do that's good. Let's have the band come back up. So here's the response today. It's just a simple one. I just want you to ask God a simple question. Where have I given a spirit of complaining a foothold in my life? And then if, if, there's, if something comes up, I just want you to process that with the Lord. God, what do I do with this? And sometimes it's as simple as God. I just, I just gonna need to give this to you. I don't know what to do with it. So Lord, Holy Spirit, we just invite you right now to come and move. Reveal the places where we have complained and bring us to a place where we can, we can give the difficulty of that to you and still stand and worship you. Thank you, Lord. Did you do that? Would you stand now? You need a moment to process a little. That's great. Or you can do it while you're standing. Again, the question I want you to, to ask him before you begin to worship is just, God, where have I given complaining a foothold in my life? And what do you want me to do with that?